0: Good morning. Welcome to CVC. That was the best good morning yet. My name is Joe Valenti. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, I serve with our students, our high school students, and then in our missions department. And uh, we are in Uh, We're about three quarters of the way through a series called Because We Believe, where we are looking at the doctrinal statements in the Apostles' Creed. And just to give you a bit of background, the Apostles' Creed was kind of a confessional uh, creed or saying that uh, has its roots even as back as early as the second century, where uh, people who are going to be baptized into the faith, this is what they would say or what they would affirm as their belief before they were baptized. And it has a rich history in the church because we believe that it contains all all of the truth that is central to Christianity. And so we have looked at several weeks at God in his triune form, at the Father, the Son, Jesus Christ, and the work of the Holy Spirit, And now we turn to a phrase, I believe in the holy Christian church, the communion of the saints. And if you know the creed, you're probably going, that's not what it really says. Because what it really says is, I believe in the holy Catholic church, the communion of saints. We change the verbiage on the art so as to not cause confusion. Uh, And so I'll just clear up the confusion because I'm going to use the word Catholic many times today. The word Catholic, lowercase c, simply means universal. It's the idea that there is a universal church across all time and all space, across land, that anyone who claims the name of Christ is part of this invisible universal church. So when we say the Apostles' Creed and we say, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church, what we are not saying is we believe or affirm in some way the Roman Catholic Church. We're saying Catholic as it is in its plainest form to mean universal. So when I use that word today, that's what it means, universal or global. Um and then the second part of it, the communion of the saints, is the idea of the local church community, the visible church, that we as members and attendees of this local body of Christ um, are important as well. So essentially, if we were to kind of um, bring the creed even down more clearly, we would say, I believe in God's global family and in God's local family. And that's what we're going to talk about today as we consider the doctrine of the church. So I prefer that we pray, uh, even though we've prayed a couple times, specifically as we go to God's Word, that the Holy Spirit might uh, illumine His Word and that He might teach us. I was recently reading uh, a book from an old Puritan, and he talks about Uh, the work of preaching, and he says, you can set out the net all night long, and unless the Holy Spirit drives fish into the net, your preaching is worthless. And I agree with that sentiment. So my hope is that not I would be the teacher this morning, but that the Holy Spirit would teach us through his perfect word. So let's pray and ask for those things. Lord, I thank you this morning for the body of believers that is known as Cuyahoga Valley Church. I thank you for Rick and Ann and for their faithfulness and obedience to plant this church over 30 years ago. And I thank you for Chad and Rika's uh, willingness to follow your call to leave sunny California and come to cold, snowy Cleveland in order that your kingdom might advance in this local community. I thank you, Lord, for the many churches that we've had the opportunity to plant both locally and globally I think of the many church planters that we have around Cleveland. I think of 50 plus churches planted among the Inzima people in Ghana, Africa. I think of those who have come to faith in Mexico because of the ministry of the Kramer family. I thank you, Lord, for Emery and Clara Laszlo and their faithfulness for decades in Ukraine. And I thank you for the four young men and their families that they have trained and raised up to plant local churches there to advance your kingdom. And I pray, Lord, that more would come to faith on Pearl Island. I pray that you would build your church on that island and that the gates of hell would not prevail against it. I thank you for your Holy Spirit who guides us into all truth and who binds us together in unity across time and space and language and culture in Christ. As we consider your church today and our role in it, would you give us wisdom? Holy Spirit, come. Come. And do what we cannot do. May your perfect word write its eternal truth on our hearts as we study it and seek to understand it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. We're going to be in First Timothy chapter 3. So if you have your Bible with you or your phone, go ahead and get there. First Timothy chapter 3. If you don't know where First Timothy is, it's way in the back. It's a little small book. And 1 Timothy is one of three books that are known as the pastoral epistles, 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus. And basically, Paul wrote these letters to these two young pastors, Timothy, who was in Ephesus, and Titus, who was on the island of Crete uh, in the Mediterranean just south of Greece, to explain to them how the church ought to function. How, it, how is it that this body of believers ought to, ought to live and they deal with myriad things. They deal with the importance of solid doctrine, of preaching the word. They deal with issues of uh, how to appoint uh, deacons and elders. They deal with gender issues within the church. They deal with false teaching within the church and, um, and, and several other things. But that's the purpose for these books. And right in the middle of First Timothy, uh, in chapter 3, he Timothy or Paul writes a really interesting few sentences as it relates to the church. And we're going to try to, it's just a few sentences, but we're going to try to pull as much information about the church as we can out of these few verses. So 1 Timothy 3, starting in verse 14. Paul says, I hope to come to you soon. But I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in Glory. So here it's interesting the way that this text sits right kind of in the middle of the book because Paul has already talked to Timothy uh, about three and a half chapters worth of r- writing. And so why, it's interesting that he would write his purpose right here. At the very beginning, he says, My purpose for writing to you, Timothy, is to ensure sound doctrine, that nobody teaches incorrect doctrine. But then right here, he jumps into the importance of the church. And he says, I want to come to you, but I'm writing these things so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. So essentially, he's letting us know that the things that we're about to read are really important. That how the church functions, what the church teaches, how the family of God acts is important. Because if it wasn't, he would have just said, hey, I've got some things to tell you, I'll tell you when I get there. But he doesn't. He says, I want to come to you, but in case I delay, I'm sending this letter ahead, cueing us into the importance of what we're about to read. And so, let's look at this first phrase. I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. Behave sounds like, like, like kids, like behave yourself. So perhaps a better way to interpret this word is, is conduct oneself. How are we to live? And he uses the term, he doesn't first say church, he says household, which is a packed word because he's not talking about a building. He's not saying, I want you to know how to conduct yourself when you're in this building. Now, what he means, the word household here in the Greek, is, it, it, it can mean building. But here, what it means is this invisible idea of a group of people that act as family. Right? When you talk about your household, you're not necessarily always talking about the building in which you live. You're talking about the people with which you do life, your family, your household. And so, I kind of have like a a phrase, I suppose, the main point of the whole morning. Because Paul uses these three terms, the household of God, the church of the living God, a pillar and a buttress of the truth. Those are three phrases he uses to describe the church. So here's the main point. I kind of uh, brought all of those down into one statement, and it is this. The church is a home for God's family and a guardian for God's truth. If you don't take anything else this morning, that is the main thrust. The church is a home for God's family and a guardian for God's truth. So let's look at this first phrase, the household of God. The church is a home for God's family. I don't know what your home is like, but my home is perfect, (laughs) right? You know that's a lie, right? Like, no home is perfect, okay? Like, there are times when I don't get along with my wife, when we disagree on something, perhaps. There are times when my kids won't eat their dinner. There may be times, and these times may have happened recently, when they're doing cartwheels in the living room, and I say, stop doing cartwheels in the living room, because you're gonna cartwheel yourself right into the fireplace, and you're gonna split your head open. They're gonna have to go to the emergency room, and they're like, what? And there they go. You're not here. Like, There are times when my, like when, when my son is playing video games, and it's like I don't exist. I'm like, Logan, Logan, <laughs> so I, I'll get down right in this business. Hey, Logan, he goes, what do you want? Like our, our homes are messy, right? They're never perfect. And, and Paul uses this word household to describe what the body of Christ ought to be like. Right, we ought to be family, and the truth is that things are never perfect. But here's the thing, we're not defined as a family by the things that break us apart. We're not defined as a family by our disagreements. My wife and my two children and myself are defined by our love for one another and our unity as a family. They're my people. And the church is the same way. That's why Paul talks about, his, uh, about Christ's church as a household. Because while things are messy, while we don't get along with everyone, we are not defined by those things. We are defined by our unity of love and unity in Christ. And so he's telling us, okay, how are we to behave in this household? How are we to conduct ourselves? I, uh, I've been on a few trips out of the country to different places in the world. One of those places is Pearl Island that you're probably familiar with. We talk about it a lot here. And it's really neat the way that people live there. And this is pretty, pretty common the world over, uh, outside of America and, and, and Western Europe, where like a room this size in America, uh, if this was land, there'd be like one home on a plot of you know, land this size. In most parts of the world, 10 to 20 families would live on a plot of land the size of this room. And they live in genuine community with one another. They share their things, they care for one another, they help one another, they watch one another's kids, they eat meals together. When, when Br- Brian actually just got back from Pearl Island and you, he's nodding his head going, yes, this is true. Because when you walk into a community, you're the new guy right? No, Nobody knows you. You walk into a community on Pearl Island, and people immediately begin to invite you over into their home. Come, 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 come. And you go, and you sit down on a, on a porch or whatever, and they usually will serve you tea and some sort of cookie, and if you're really lucky, you'll have dinner with the family. One time, we were, uh, I was with a group of students, and this wonderful old man and his wife invited us to his home, and he brought out this huge bowl of cassava and cassava is like like a root vegetable, like a potato or like a sweet potato ish type thing, and um, and it was just kind of boiled, stewed, and he set it down in front of us, and he started to serve each of us. And our host said, "This is this man's family's dinner, and he's serving it to you guys. This is all they have for today. Eat it." And so we did. And there's something about this way of life, as I've spent days there, you kind of sink into that way of life of living genuinely in community with people. And we're not like that here, are we? We pull into our garages, and what's the first thing you do after you pull in the garage? You shut the garage and then usually open up the garage to go back out. Every now and then, if we have to do something in our yard, we might say, hey, neighbor. But Pastor Matt Chandler, who's doing the, uh, the sermon series and the, and the book that we're using to accompany this series in our life groups, he says, here in America, we're, we're backyard people. Right? Like we, we do business in the backyard where only people who are invited are allowed to come. And we have our big fences to block from the neighbors or we have shrubs to keep our privacy. But most of the world are front porch people, like on Pearl Island. And they're out in front and as people are in the community they welcome them in, they do life together. And here's what I have come to think as I've spent time in that culture. It's no wonder that Islam has such a hold on these people because they're living life in community the way that Christians are supposed to live life in community. They're eating with one another. They're bearing one another's burdens. They know when somebody in their, in their community is sick They know everyone by name. Now I'm not saying that Islam is the way to go. Far from it. But as we see the church in the first century, when you look at the book of Acts, that's the way that they live. They lived in community and they had everything in common and they shared and they knew one another. And so here we are, we're to be the household. There's like 700 people in this room. There were 700 people at the previous service and 400 maybe in the first one. And we are called to be family. We're called to be the household of God. And here's the thing, you can't do family just on Sunday morning. I guarantee you don't know most of the people in this room and you don't do life with most of the people in this room. Most of the people in this room have not been in your home, and you're not able to bear their burdens, and you don't know how to pray for them specifically. I'm not saying that as a, as a cut against you. I'm just trying to give us the reality here. The other thing that's against us in 21st century America is that we, we kind of go to a regional church. Right, like if, if we were in a small country church somewhere in Ashtabula County, like we would probably be a little more communal, but we, like we're from all over the place. Like we have, like I live in Streetsboro. You don't even know where that is, right? My wife is a teacher out there and we bought a foreclosure and we've kind of, like, that's what we can afford and do. And so that's, that's what we do. I have a 25 minute drive to work. None of you're not stopping over right? You're not like, hey, I was in the neighborhood. That's rarely going to happen. And so we live all over the place. People come to this church from the north and from the west and from the east and from the south. Some people drive an hour to get to church here. And so we're really up against it when it comes to being family. And so what do we do? How are we to be a household, a family, if that is the case? Here's my encouragement to you, my brothers and my sisters, my family in Christ. We must be as intentional as ever about being family to one another. We've gotta intentionally open our homes. We've gotta intentionally open our schedules. We've gotta put ourselves out maybe. A little bit. You got to invite people that maybe aren't like you. There's, uh, I'll tell you what, it was awesome. There's a couple in the first service, and they walked out, and they had huge smiles on their face, and and they shook my hand, and they said, hey, there's a guy. He sits behind us every week. He's single, and we were talking, and he had mentioned that he was alone for Thanksgiving, and so we invited him to our house for Christmas, and I said, that that ought not be odd. That should be the norm. should be the norm among the family of God. I had my wife, like Linda and I are passionate about this. We want people in our home. We want to do life with people. So we had, we had 80 some people that we invited to our home for dinner or for something else this year. We hope to increase that next year. And it's not always easy. It takes time. It can be expensive. Our kids don't always get along with one another. We don't always get along. Like, we just invite, hey, you look fun, come on over. <laughs> we, don't, we, don't, we, don't, we don't know if we're gonna get along, but here's the thing, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Because if, if you don't really connect with somebody in your family, is the right response just to say, well, I don't want you to be in the family you are not welcome at Thanksgiving dinner. That's not the way to handle it. So if we're going to be family, realize it's going to be messy. The perfect case scenario is you invite somebody over from church, hey, here we go, we're gonna try this thing, and they take off their shoes and their kids are super well-behaved and they make dessert and conversation flows smoothly and it's like, oh, this family's easy. But that's not always the case. They, they're, you know, their kids might jump on your furniture and you know, and, and and conversation might not s- flow smoothly, but we have got to be a people who would intentionally be the family of God. We've got to work out our schedules. We've got to do things, reach across. Like we invited, uh, I, I just saw them earlier at the at the last service. A couple who um, who have started coming to our church. They're a black family, and I invited them over specifically because they are African American. Now that may sound odd to you. I'll tell you what, I don't know a lot of black people. So if I'm gonna really be family and understand their worldview, I've gotta know them. And actually, Keith, my brother said, he goes, you know what, my wife and I have been trying to find more white friends, (laughs) because We don't know many white people. And so that's what the family of God ought to look like. The household of God ought to be family. So brothers and sisters, I don't know what your rhythm is like, but I want to challenge you to go home today. If you're single or if you have a spouse talk to your kids, whatever, and come up with an action plan that 2019 will be the year where you intentionally become closer to the family that is here at Cuyahoga Valley Church. That by the end of 2019, you will have people that you know more deeply, whose burdens you can bear, whose prayer requests you can pray for. That we would become more and more the family of God, that we would eat together and shed tears together and call and check up about that job interview and know when they're going to be in the hospital and visit them and give our money and our time to them when they're in need. We would guard them from slander, vacation together, do activities together, speak truth to one another, that we would truly be family. More and more that we would be family. The church is a home for God's family, but it's also a a home for for the global family. Church is a home for God's family, not just us, but everyone. There's this sense of the Catholic or universal church, the Bible tells us not only is, are we local and visible, the people you see, but there's this invisible dimension to the church. And Paul says it in an interesting way. In verse 15, if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. Like why would he make that qualification? He doesn't have to say that. It's like he's repeating himself. The household of God, which is the church of the living God. I would propose to you that he's talking about a unity, a global unity, a universality of the church that comes through not just this local visible gathering, but through an invisible unity that is provided by the Spirit through Christ. In John 17, Jesus prays to the Father and he asks the Father that all of his followers would be one, That we would be unified. In Ephesians 2, starting in verse 18, Paul says, For through him, Jesus, we have both access in one spirit to the Father, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but your fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone. So he's not talking about a literal building. Jesus Christ isn't really a cornerstone, right? Like he doesn't morph into a rock. He is the cornerstone of this invisible church, the unified church, the Catholic church across all ages and space and time. And he says this in opposition to what was probably happening in Ephesus when he wrote this letter. See, Ephesus was the home to the temple of Artemis. And that's kind of a a rendering of what the temple of Artemis would have looked like. It was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, a massive structure, had 127 of those uh, pillars that held up the roof. They were 60 feet tall by four feet wide, and they held up a roof that was made of solid marble. Archaeologists uh, have estimated that every stone of that roof weighed about 24 tons. It was huge. The picture does not do it justice. And they believed, it wasn't just a gathering place, they believed that Artemis literally lived there because there was a statue of Artemis there. And this was the case in all pagan cultures the world uh, over their temples to their fake and false gods were where that god or goddess actually lived. They believed that he lived there. And in opposition to that, God speaks of himself through the prophets and through the apostles as being the living God. When Stephen is stoned, he, he says that this god is not contained within houses of stone or wood. There's, there's a comparison here between dead gods like Artemis who are just a statue in one single location, and the living God who is bound by no stone, by no structure, by no building. The living God binds all of us together throughout the globe in unity through Christ. So we belong to the Catholic Church, the unified or global church, and to the communion of the saints, the brothers and sisters here, that we live and do life with at CVC. Galatians three, for in Christ you are all sons of God through faith. We have brothers and sisters anywhere where people call on the name of the Lord and are saved. We have brothers and sisters in the faith. We are not Catholic because of some singular human leader. We are not Catholic because of some similar liturgy or practice. We are Catholic, universal, global, because of faith in Christ alone binds us together in the spirit. So the church is a home for God's family and is a guardian for God's truth. I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. And I'm sure as Paul wrote this, that the temple of Artemis is kind of in view because there are these huge pillars that hold up the roof of this building. And so he calls the church a pillar and a buttress of truth. The truth. Now, this is an important distinction between Protestant and Roman Catholic belief. We would say Catholic belief would use this text as a way to prove, see, the church is the foundation of belief. The Pope and church practice are the foundation of belief. The Protestant view would say, no, 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 no. Where do you see the word foundation? Pillar and buttress of the truth. So truth is something other than a pillar or buttress. A pillar does not create the roof or the foundation. Neither does a buttress. Those things hold up the truth. And so to put this a different way, to be a pillar and a buttress, if you don't know what a buttress is, we, we have a picture of that, right? That's a buttress. In case you're like, you keep saying buttress. What is that? In kind of medieval architecture, it's a thing that like, you know, held up the walls. So as a pillar and buttress of the truth, the church is to hold up God's truth and to make sure that it stays there. That's the aim, right? And where does truth come from? from the word of God. See that again, like there's this distinction. Truth does not come from the church. Truth doesn't come from some leader. I don't determine what truth is. Pastor Chad does not determine what truth is. Our job is to point all of us as the family to scripture. It's one of the defining points of the Reformation. Sola Scriptura, scripture alone is our authority. No one else and no thing else. And this is what Paul is driving home. You are to be a pillar and a buttress of the truth. And here's the thing. We live in this age of religious pluralism where it's kind of like live and let live and anything goes and as long as you stamp the word Christian on it, it's okay. And I would just propose this to you because you're my family and I, and, and, and I care about this, right? I care about you. The Bible always tells us that Satan is deceptive. I think that we think like that false teachers, like we'll know false teachers because they'll have a scary robe on or something. Or that like, don't read this book because it has a skull and it says Antichrist. That's probably not the one to read, Right? That's not like you've never seen that in a Christian bookstore or on the blogosphere. False teachers and false teaching are crafty. They look sheep in wolves' clothing, or sorry, wolves in sheep's clothing. Or angels of darkness masquerading as angels of light. And so what does that mean for you and I? It means that we have got to know our Bible. Because only when we know our Bible are we able to detect error the Holy Spirit illuminating and showing us what is in God's word in context helps us to understand and detect false teaching because what cults do, what a lot of cults do is they still use the Bible or they redefine the Bible or they choose to interpret it a different way or they yank a verse or two out of context and then to us, if we're not students of the word, we go, ooh, that looks pretty good. We have got to be people of the truth. God's family is a family of the truth. And here's the thing, here's the thing. We have gotten so far away from challenging one another and like in challenging false doctrine, it's like we don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. Oh, well, he seems like a nice guy or she seems like a nice gal. Here's the thing. If somebody, men, men in the room, if somebody was spreading lies about your wife, would you just go, eh? No, you wouldn't. I hope not, if somebody was slandering your children, talking wrongly about your children, about your family, would you just go, well, hey, everybody has their own opinion? (laughs) No. And so that's why this family dynamic is important because when we talk about teaching, about authority, the authority of scripture, we're talking about what it is that we are as family, who we are as family, and who God is. And so they're important things for us to consider. We are a pillar and buttress of the truth. We hold God's word up as ultimate authority in our families and in our churches, in our communities, and we make sure that it stays there. That is the role of the family of God. The church is a pillar and a buttress of the truth. We are the church is a home for God's family and a guardian for God's truth. And so here's the question that I've been puzzling over just a bit. Like what about people who don't go to this church and they don't, we don't agree on practice? But what about our brothers and sisters who are Lutheran or Methodist or Nazarene or Presbyterian? Like, what, what do we do? Like, how, how are we unified when it seems like we're divided? I think Paul gives us an answer here as we finish our text. Verse 16, he says, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of Godliness. Now, it's important real quick that I explain the word mystery here. Mysterion in the Greek doesn't mean something unknown, like you and I would understand mystery. The word here is something that was once unknown, but has now been revealed. So that's, that's the understanding of that word. So great, we confess, is the mystery that has now been revealed of godliness, he was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. This little hymn that he cites is clear. He is talking about Christ, the person and work of Jesus Christ as revealed in the scriptures, the one thing, the one doctrine, the one thing on which, on which we must not waver is that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone in Christ alone. And if we have brothers and sisters from other denominations that affirm the absolute authority of scripture and that salvation is through grace by faith in Christ alone, we have common ground. And we need not always be in opposition. We need to major on the majors. And there are some majors, I just mentioned them. The authority of scripture and salvation by Christ alone. But on the minors, how you baptize. What your church service looks like. Church government. All of those things, we need not allow them to divide us. There are some places that churches have gone that claim to be Christian that are indeed not Christian. And you will know those practices because they are in opposition to scripture. And so again, we have to be discerning, but... We can find brothers and sisters and believers in Christ, the family across many denominations. I was just talking to a friend earlier and I actually grew up in the Assemblies of God, the Pentecostal church. We used to dance on the pews and get down. And yet we believed in salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone and in the authority of the scripture. A church, the church is a home for God's family and a guardian for God's truth. Here are just a few action steps that you can take home. First, my question is, are you in God's family? There may be some of you here in the room, you're just visiting, or maybe you're in town for Thanksgiving or for business or you're new in the area and you've not yet confessed your sin, repented of it, and ask Jesus to be the Lord of your life. The gospel message is that we have a problem called sin and it ruins everything, our families and our relationships included, and that Jesus Christ, God in God, came and put himself into human form, lived a perfect life, died on the cross in order that your sins and my sins might be forgiven. And if you put your faith in that Jesus, you repent of your sins, you will become a part of God's family and you will have an eternal home in heaven. My second question is for you all and the question is, are you acting like family? Do you really know the people that sit by you? If you were to turn around and just look around, how many people do you really know? Do you even know their name? Do you know where they live? Do you know what's burdening them? Now I'm not saying that you have to know everyone, but we ought to know some people in our family really closely. And we ought to be acquainted with some others that we would be able to care for them. Here's some ideas. Being hospitable, opening your home. Intentionally developing deeper friendships. I called a guy, maybe six months ago, and I said to him, I need a really good friend. Will you be my friend? (laughs) And he was like, yeah, man, love to be your friend. (laughs) Great, guess we're friends. (laughs) And uh, he's been a great encouragement to me over these last several months. Come to the business meeting. I know that sounds a little far-fetched, but every December we have a business meeting. It's next Tuesday, and I'm a terrible hypocrite because I'm going to be out of town. <laughs> I already talked to Chad about it. But here's the thing. Like if you are having a meeting in your family, like you're having a family meeting, and you're going to talk about your plans for vacation, or you're going to talk about your budget, or you're going to talk about moving, like you would, you would be there, right? Like you wouldn't just like, oh, I'll let the kids take care of it. You would, like, it, would be, it would be important. And so as a member of the family here at CVC, it really bothers me on multiple levers, le- levels, like sad bothers and angry bothers. When we have a church gathering to talk about budget and about vision, where Pastor Chad is going to share his heart for the future, and aside from pastors and elders, maybe 10 people show up. So that's a, that's a challenge. That's part of being in the family. Know what we're doing and where we're going and how we're spending the money that you tithe. Missions, caring about brothers and sisters around the globe, inviting more people into the family. Another action step is to truly learn and grow in order that you might be able to defend the truth, to know God's word, to study it in order that you would be able to be a witness to those who have questions questions that you could defend it. My final thing that I'll just mention is I would encourage you to listen to the pastors of CVC. And that's not to like try to put you under our, uh, some sort of like thumb, but a lot of time, like we, we spend time studying the Bible and culture and cults and false religion for a living. It's what we do. And there have been many times when myself or another pastor has warned one of our family here about some false teaching, and it's just sort of ignored as if we don't know what we're talking about. And I would just propose to you, I'll say, well, not propose, I'll say this to you from the bottom of my heart I love you all. I love this church not this building. This building drives me crazy sometimes. (laughs) But I love you all. And those of you who have had kids come through our youth ministry, you know I love your kids. And so when we talk about things in the Bible, when we warn you of false teachers or of false doctrines, know that it comes out of a heart of love. We're not trying to rob you of something. We're trying to be a pillar and a buttress of the truth. May we all fall more deeply in love with the family of God locally and globally, that we might love one another, that we might encourage one another to love God more deeply, and that we would collectively hold up God's truth in a world that desperately needs it. Communion is a way that we affirm who is in the family. So in baptism, someone is baptized and we, the many confirm the one who is being baptized as saying, this person believes what we believe and we confirm them or affirm them as part of God's family. And in communion, as we remember Christ's death and resurrection, we reaffirm and consider who is in the family of God. And so, if you are a Christian in this room, and when I say that, what I mean is that you would affirm the authority of Scripture, and that you believe that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone alone, then you are a part of the family if you have confessed and believe that truth. So if that's true about you, I would invite you to take communion with us. If it is not true about you, if you're in the room and you're not a Christian, uh, I would ask that you not take communion with us. And it's not to be rude, but it's just to say that you're not yet a part of God's family. And this is a family affair. And we're not going to look at you funny but I would just ask if you if you were served you can just put the elements uh, on the on the ground or hold them with you but I would ask that you not take communion with us this is for Christ's family as we affirm one another in membership in the family Paul says this in first Corinthians 17 starting in verse 23For I receive from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's eat together. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's drink together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that in your perfect will and plan, you it fit that your son would come to this earth and live a perfect life and die on a cross in order that our sins might be forgiven, that his blood would wash away our filthiness. And I thank you that since that moment, people from every tribe and tongue and nation and color and age and gender have found new life in Christ and Christ alone. I thank you, Lord, that we belong to a family here at CVC that holds up your truth. We love your word. Would you make us more and more a people after your word, after truth, that we'd pillar your truth and buttress your truth. And would you make us more and more a family that we would live life with one another We would care deeply for one another, that we would get to know people that we don't quite know yet, that we would open up our doors with all of the messiness that 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 implies. It would open up our homes and our lives that people would know us and that we would be known, that we would be your family. We ask all of this in the name of Christ. Amen.